Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Sir Gibby, Episode 44 At this time, neither Gibby nor Donald strove against his creation, what the wise of this world call their fate. In truth, Gibby never did, and for Donald, the process was at present in a stage much too agreeable to rouse any inclination to resist. He enjoyed his new phase of life immensely. If he did not distinguish himself as a scholar, it was not because he neglected his work, but because he was at the same time doing that by which alone the water could ever rise in the well he was digging. He was himself growing far too eager after knowledge to indulge in emulation. He gained no prizes. What had he to do with how much or how little those around him could eat as compared with himself? No work, noble or lastingly good, can come of emulation any more than of greed. I think the motives are spiritually the same. The result of Donald's work appeared but very partially in his examinations, which were honest and honorable to him. It was hidden in his thoughts, his aspirations, his growth, and his verse. For Gibby, the minister, had not been long teaching him, before he began to desire to make a scholar of him. Partly from being compelled to spend some labor upon it, the boy was gradually developing an unusual facility in expression. His teacher, compact of conventionalities, would have modeled the result upon some writer imagined by him a master of style. But the hurtful folly never got any hold of Gibby. All he ever cared about was to say what he meant, and avoid saying something else. To know when he had not said what he meant, and to set the words right. It resulted that when people did not understand what he meant, the cause generally lay with them, not with him, and that if they sometimes smiled over his mode, it was because it lay closer to nature than theirs. They would have found it a hard task to improve it. What the fault with his organs of speech was, I cannot tell. His guardian lost no time in having them examined by a surgeon in high repute a professor of the university, but Dr. Skinner's opinion put an end to question and hope together. Gibby was not in the least disappointed. He had got on very well as yet without speech. It was not like sight or hearing. The only voice he could not hear was his own, and that was just the one he had neither occasion nor desire to hear. As to his friends, those who had known him the longest minded his dumbness the least. But the moment the defect was understood to be irreparable, Mrs. Sclatter very wisely proceeded to learn the finger speech, and as she learned it, she taught it to Gibby. As to his manners, which had been and continued to be her chief care, a certain disappointment followed her first rapid success. She never could get them to take on the case hardened needful for what she counted the final polish. They always retained a certain simplicity, which she called childishness. It came, in fact, of childlikeness, but the lady was not child enough to distinguish the difference, as great as that between the back and the front of a head. As then the minister found him incapable of forming a style, though time soon proved him capable of producing one, 
so the minister's wife found him as incapable of putting on company manners of any sort, as most people are incapable of putting them off without being rude. It was disappointing to Mrs. Sclatter, but Gibby was just as content to appear what he was, as he was unwilling to remain what he was. Being dumb, she would say to herself he would pass in any society, but if he had had his speech she never could make, have succeeded in making him a thorough gentleman. He would have always been saying the right thing in the wrong place. By that m wrong place she meant the place where alone the thing could have any pertinence. In after years, however, Gibby's manners were, whether pronounced such or not, almost universally felt to be charming, but Gibby knew nothing of his manners any more than of the style in which he wrote. One night, on their way home from an evening party, the minister and his wife had a small difference, probably about something of as little real consequence to them as the knowledge of it is to us. But by the time they reached home, they had got to the very summit of politeness with, with each other. Gibby was in the drawing-room, as it happened, waiting their return. At the first sound of their voices, he knew before a syllable reached him that something was wrong. When they entered, they were too much engrossed in difference to heed his presence, and went on disputing with the utmost external propriety of words and demeanor, but with both injury and a sense of injury in every tone. Had they looked at Gibby, I cannot think they would have been silenced. But while neither of them dared turn eyes the way of him, neither had moral strength sufficient to check the words that rose to the lips. A discreet, socially wise boy would have left the room, but how could Gibby abandon his friends to the fairy darts of the wicked one? He ran to the side table, before mentioned, with a vague presentiment of what was coming. Mrs. Sclatter, feeling rather than seeing him move across the room like a shadow, sat dread expectation, and presently her fear arrived in the shape of a large New Testament and a face of loving sadness and keen discomfort, such as she had never before seen Gibby wear. He held out the book to her, pointing with a finger to the words. She could not refuse to let her eyes fall upon them. Have sought in yourselves, and have peace one with another. What Gibby made of the salt I do not know, and whether he understood it or not, was of little consequence, seeing he had it, but the rest of the sentence he understood so well that he would fain have the wit-wreathing yoke fellows think of it. The lady's cheeks had been red before, but now they were redder. She rose, cast an angry look at the dumb prophet, a look which seemed to say, how dare you suggest such a thing, and left the room. What have you got there? asked the minister, turning sharply upon him. Gibby showed him the passage. "'What have you got to do with it?' he retorted, throwing the book on the table. "'Go to bed, a detestable prig, you say, reader?' "'That is just what Mr. and Mrs. Slatter thought him that night, "'but they never quarreled again before him. "'In truth, they were not given to quarreling. "'Many couples who love each other more quarrel more and with less politeness. "'For Gibby he went to bed puzzled and afraid there must be a beam in his eye.' The very first time Donald and he could manage it, they set out together to find Mistress Crowell. Donald thought he had nothing to do but walk straight 
from Mistress Murkison's door to hers, but to his own annoyance, and the disappointment of both, he soon found he had not a notion left as to how the place lay, except that it was by the river. So as it was already rather late, they put off their visit to another time, and took a walk instead. But Mistress Crowell, haunted by old memories, most of them far from pleasant, grew more and more desirous of looking upon the object of perhaps the least disagreeable amongst them. She summoned resolution at last, went to the market a little better dressed than usual, and when business there was over, and she had shut up her little box of a shop, walked to Dower Street to the minister's house. He's after Enoch, cross my door, she said to herself, speaking of Mr. Slatter, and though will I wot, the sight started me on a thing but ill, I never looked him ken he was less nor welcome. And again, being a minister, gives the freedom o' per folks' hooses, itch hots in the nefer exchange, to give them the freedom o' his. Therewith, encouraging herself, she walked up the steps and rang the bell. It was a cold, frosty winter evening, and as she stood waiting for the door to be opened, much the poor woman longed for her own fair side in a dram. Her period of expectation was drawn out not a little through the fact that the servant whose duty it was to answer the bell was just then waiting at table. Because of a public engagement, the minister had to dine earlier than usual. They were in the middle of their soup, cocky, leaky, nice and hot when the maid informed her employer that a woman was at the door wanting to see Sir Gilbert. Gibby looked up, put down his spoon, and was rising to go, when the minister, laying his hand on his arm, pressed him gently back to his chair, and Gibby yielded, waiting. "'What sort of a woman?' he asked the girl. "'A decent-looking, working-like body,' she answered. "'I couldn't see her very well. It's safe foggy the night to boot the door.' Tell her we're at dinner. She may call again in an hour, or if she likes to leave a message. Stay, tell her to come again tomorrow morning. I wonder who she is, he added, turning, he thought, to Gibby. But Gibby was gone. He had passed behind his chair, and all he saw of him was his back as he followed the girl from the room. In his eagerness, he left the door open, and they saw him dart to the visitor, shake hands with her in evident delight, and begin pulling her towards the room. Now Mistress Crowell, though nowise inclined to quail before the minister, would not willingly have intruded herself upon him, especially while he sat at dinner with this rather formidable lady. But she fancied, for she stood where she could not see into the dining room, that Gibby was taking her where they might have a quiet news together, and occupied with her bonnet or some other source of feminine disquiet, remained thus mistaken until she stood on the threshold. When looking up, she started stopped, made an obeisance to the minister, and another to the minister's lady, and stood doubtful, if not a little abashed. "'Not here, my good woman,' said Mr. Slatter, rising. "'Oh, it's you, Mistress Crowell. I will speak to you in the hall.' Mrs. Crowell's face flushed, and she drew back a step, but Gibby still held her, and with a look to Mr. Slatter that should have sent straight to his heart the fact that she was dear to his soul, kept drawing her into the room. 
He wanted her to take his chair at the table. It passed swiftly through her mind that one who had been so intimate both with Sir George and Sir Gibby in the old time, and had given the latter his tea every Sunday night for so long, might surely even in such changed circumstances be allowed to enter the same room with him, however grand it might be, and involuntarily almost she yielded half a doubtful step while Mr. Sclatter, afraid of offending Sir Gilbert, hesitated on the vance to prevent her. How friendly the warm air felt! How consoling the crimson walls, with the soft flicker of the great fire upon them! How delicious the odor of the cocky leaky! She could give up whiskey a good deal more easily, she thought, if she had the comforts of a minister to fall back upon. And this was the same minister who had once told her that her soul was as precious to him as that of any other in his parish and then driven her from respectable jink lane to the disreputable direfoot. It all passed through her mind in a flash, while yet Gibby pulled and she resisted. Gilbert, come here, called Mrs. Sclatter. He went to her side, obedient and trusting as a child. Really, Gilbert, you must not, she said, rather loud for a whisper. It won't do to turn things upside down this way. If you are to be a gentleman, and my inmate of my house, you must behave like other people. I cannot have a woman like that sitting at my table. Do you know what sort of a person she is? Gibby's face shone up. He raised his hands. He was already able to talk a little. Is she a sinner? He asked on his fingers. Mrs. Sclatter nodded. Gibby wheeled around and sprang back to the hall, whither the minister had, coming down upon her, bows on, like a sea-shouldering well, in a manner ejected Mistress Crowell, and where he was, now, talking to her with an air of confidential con condescension, willing to wipe out any feeling of injury she might perhaps be inclined to cherish, and not being made more welcome. To his consternation, Gibby threw his arms round her neck and gave her a great hug. "'Sir Gilbert!' he exclaimed, very angry, and the more angry that he knew he was in the right. "'Leave Mistress Crowell alone, and go back to your dinner immediately. Jane, open the door.' Jane opened the door. Gibby let her go, and Mrs. Crowell went. But on the threshold she turned. "'Will, sir,' she said, with more severity than piquet, and a certain sad injury not unmingled with dignity. "'Ye hay, stop it!' o'er my door seal monies the time and that with sayer words e your moo nor i ever minute at payin ye back and i never said to ye gang say first ye turned me oot o my ain house and no ye turned me out o yours and what's left ye to turn me out o but the house o the lord and deed sir ye need never warn gin the likes o me disna care about gangin to hear a preached gospel, we would fain see a practiced Anne. And nay, gin ye had said to me, Know the night, come away, then, Mr. Scroll, and take a plate o' cookie, cocky leaky, whist. It's a call natched. It's myself what hey been, say uplifted, with your kindness, and at I what hey gain, ham, and tan, I done I can. Ablins a read at my Bible, and been to be seen at the kirk upon Sunday. I wot, oh, that ye may be sure, for it's a heap easier to gang to the kirk nor to read the book your lane, where ye cannot help thinking up o what it says to ye. But no, as tis, I'm a wa home to the wasky bottle, and the sin oat gan there be only in sick a night o' call and fog. I'll just light your door. You shall have 
A plate of soup and welcome, Mistress Kroll, said the minister in a rather stagey tone of hospitality. Jane, to take Mistress Kroll to the kitchen with her, you and the devil's tell your soup at a sud sight, cried Mistress Kroll, drawing herself up suddenly with a snort of anger. When turned to I a beggar, I would fain be informed. What's your soup or your grace, I sought till, sir? The Lord be atween you and me. There's first, that'll be last, and last it'll be first. But the tains know me, and the tithers know you, sir. With that, she turned and walked down the steps, holding her head high. Really, Sir Gilbert, said the minister, going back into the dining room, but no Gibby was there. Nobody but his wife, sitting in solitary discomposure at the head of her dinner table. The same instant, he heard a clatter of feet down the steps and turned quickly into the hall again, where Jane was in the act of shutting the door. Sir Gilbert's run out after the woman, sir, she said. Hoots, grunted the minister, greatly displeased, and went back to his wife. Take Sir Gilbert's plate away, said Mrs. Sclatter to the servant. It's his New Testament again, she went on, when the girl had left the room. My dear, my dear, take care, said her husband. He had not much notion of obedience to God, but he had some idea of respect to religion. He was just an idolater of a Christian shade. Really, Mr. Sclatter, his wife continued, I had no idea what I was undertaking, but you gave me no choice. The creature is incorrigible. But, of course, he must prefer the society of women like that. They are the sort he was accustomed to when he received his first impressions. And how could it be otherwise? You knew how he had been brought up and what you had to expect. Brought up, cried the minister, and caused his spoonful of cocky-licky to rush into his mouth with the noise of the German schlurfen, then burst into a loud laugh. You should have seen him about the streets with his trousers. Mr. Sclatter, then you ought to have known better, said his wife, and laying down her spoon, sat back into the embrace of her chair. But in reality, she was not the least sorry he had undertaken the charge. She could not help loving the boy, and her words were merely the foam of vexation mingled with not a little jealousy that he had left her and his nice hot dinner to go with the woman. Had she been a fine lady like herself, I doubt if she would have liked it much better, but she specially recoiled from coming into a rivalry with one in whose house a horrible murder had been committed, and who had been before the magistrates in consequence. Nothing further was said until the second course was on the table. Then the lady spoke again. You saw him throw his arms around the horrid creature's neck. Well, he had just asked me if she was a sinner. I made no doubt she was. Off with the word goes my gentleman to embrace her. Here they laughed together. Dinner over, they went to a missionary meeting, where the one stood and made a speech, and the other sat and listened, while Gibby was having tea with Mistress Crowell. From that day, Gibby's mind was much ex exercised as to what he could do for Mistress Crowell, and now first he began to wish he had his money. As fast as he learned the finger alphabet, he had taught it to Donal, and as already they had a good many symbols in use between them, so many indeed that Donal would often, instead of speaking, make use of signs. They are now the means of communication almost as free as if they had had between them two tongues instead of one. It was easy, therefore, for Gibby to impart to Donal his anxiety concerning her and his strong desire to help her, and doing so he lamented in a gentle way his present inability. This communication Donal judged it wise to impart in his turn to Mistress Crowell. 
You see, ma'am, he said in conclusion, he's some why or another gotten into his head at your just a ween or free with the bottle. I canna. You'll be the best judge o' that yourself. Mr. Scroll was silent for a whole minute by the clock. From the moment when Gibby forsook his dinner and his grand new friends to go with her, the woman's heart had begun to grow to the boy, and her old memories fed the new crop of affection. Well, she replied at length, with no little honesty, I may in a be say ills he thinks me, for he had a his per father afores e'en but the bairns rised. I the main, and we mon look tilty and see what can be done for it. I will be lathe to disappoint the bonnie lad. Mr. Grant, gin ye ever there, with a Christian, so up o the face of this wicked world, that Christian souls we Sir Gibby, and what could he thought it? But it's the Lord's doom, and marvelous in our eyes. Oh, ye need to look like that. I can my Bible know that ill. She added, catching a glimmer of surprise on Donald's countenance. But for that, Mr. Sclatter Dodd, I wouldn't be sair upon him, but gin he be fit to call a nail here and a nail there, and fix a skeleton or twelve creeping up o the rigging o the kirk, I'm well sure he's nay wise m- master builder fit to lay up on the foundation. Ay, I tell ye, I can't my book know that he. She added with some triumph, then resumed, What the war what he, or she, or Sir Gibby, had been thought. They had invited me, as I was there, to sit me doon and take a plate o' their cookie-leaky with them. There was ain a thought them, it was far worn o'er me, got enough company for him, and maybe I may sit down with him after a while to help o' my bonnie, we Sir Gibby. I cannot help can him, we Sir Gibby. Eh, the tune called him that, though hath. He'll be a big man, or he be hot. And for Tittle, I was a one to keep honor where honor was due, and never ants will, as I can him, did I can his honest father. For gin ever there was an honest man, yon was him. Never did I ca him anything but Sir George, neither mair nor less, and that though he brought the hardest of the cobbling of the ook, and Opo Saturdays was pleased to hay a guide wash on my ain bedroom, and pit on a clean sark on my dead man's wrist his soul. No at I'm a papist, Mr. Grant, and I can't better nor think it was one easy praying for them as scan. For what is there to pay only heed to sick heathenish prayers is that what to be? Nah, we mon pray for the living, and it may deed de some good till and no for them and it's a over with the Lord hey mercy upon them. My readers may suspect, one for one reason, another for another, that she had already before Donald came that evening, been holding communion with the idol in the cupboard and I confess that it was so. But it is equally true that before the next year was gone she was a shade better, and that not without considerable struggle and more failures than successes. Upon one occasion let those who analyze the workings of the human mind, as they would the entrails of an eight-day clock, explain the phenomenon I am about to relate, or decline to believe it, as they choose, she became suddenly aware that she was getting perilously near the brink of actual drunkenness. 
I'll take with this a move for mayor, she said herself. It's but a move for and it's the last uh, the bottle and it wad be the a pretty nobody to get the good out. She poured it out. It was nearly half a glass. She took it in one large mouthful. But while she held it in her mouth to make the most of it, even while it was between her teeth, something smote her with a sudden sense that this very moment was the crisis of her fate, that now the axe was laid to the root of her tree. She dropped on her knees, not to pray like poor Sir George, but to spout the mouthful of whiskey into the fire. In roaring flame, it rushed up the chimney. She started back. Yeah, she cried. It was a week before she drank another drop, and then she took it with circumspection, and the firm resolved to let no more of them enter into her, and she could manage to keep in order. Mr. and Mrs. Sclatter got over their annoyance as well as they could, and agreed that in this case no notice should be taken of Gibby's conduct. Thank you for listening to another episode of Apple.